touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And we're going to continue our discussion about a big old company and technology. And before we get into it, you know, I, I totally forgot to mention this in the last episode, but this is the episode where it really counts. We had a listener request this topic. Yep. Yeah. Earl requested this to- topic on Twitter. And if you want to check out his tweets, it's E-A-R-L-E underscore C-L-U-B-B. That's where he, he sends out those those tweets on the Twitter thing. <laughs> so uh, his tweet was, how about an episode on the history of AT&T, especially the deregulation of the telco industry? Now, of course, we already talked about the founding of AT&T but, uh, and how it started off kind of as a natural monopoly. Uh, now we're going to really look into how that continued and how the United States government began to uh, – Put the brakes on AT&T a little bit. Oh, right. Because at the beginning, they'd kind of been saying, you know, you guys have this terrific infrastructure. You go on and build that. That's terrific. Right. This would be incredibly useful for the United States. And so uh, and, they, and they took it over, for example, during World War One, which we talked about in the first episode. Right. Government said, let's just uh, take over this for a little bit and then returned it. Barely used. Just a couple of years later. Uh-huh. Uh, so we left off in the 20s. So we're picking up right around 1924, which is when uh, AT&T de- developed something uh, that, frankly, I was shocked at how early the development for this technology came. I, I didn't expect to see this. It's a telephotography, which is also called a fax machine in Ooh. 1924. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. People were faxing goofy little uh, pictures of of uh, uh, early 20th century folklore back and forth, you know, letting people know that if you if you forward this one letter, Rockefeller will give you free M&Ms or something. I don't know. I, I don't think that's what was actually being faxed at the time. I, I honestly uh, just uh, made all that up because I didn't research that. But in, I, I don't know what the first fax was. Um, hopefully not. It not some sort of email scam. We should do we should do another. I think we actually got a request for a fax related episode. We should totally look into yep. that sometime. We should do one about fax machines and one on fax lore, which is kind of the predecessor to the Internet email memes that we see today mm-hmm. or Facebook memes. Exactly. Uh, okay, so in 1925, things that we do know about Bell Telephone Laboratories Incorporated opened for business. That is that is Bell's R&D lab, yeah. which would come out with some of the most important pieces of technology of the 20th century. Exactly. Yes. Uh, Bell Labs famous for their research. And uh, here's the thing is that the, the research that Bell Labs did was not always directly related to the telephone industry, at least not in a way that you could tell from the surface. But you, but down the line. Would was, become critical. Exactly. It, it's uh, it's instrumental in the way telephones work today. Now, 1926, that's when Bell Labs and Western Electric begin to make sound equipment for these crazy moving pictures that are coming out of the Hollywood these days. That's crazy. Yeah. So uh, obviously not too far from the whole idea of transmitting sound. Now it's recording and playing back sound in a way that works in a synchronized fashion with moving pictures. Uh, 1927, AT&T begins transatlantic telephone service between London and the United States 
But they don't have a cable. There's no cable connecting the U.S. and London at this point. Ah, uh, that would be via radio signal. Yeah, and uh, it was um, you know, it was a it was a slight, a uh, little expensive to make a phone call. I it, it was seventy five bucks for three minutes. Yeah, which uh, if you're looking at nineteen twenty seven dollars, and then you compare them to today's dollars, I I use the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which uses the Consumer Price Index to factor in how much stuff costs from one era to another. According to that. Uh, that would be about $1,008 for those three minutes. So if you've got an extremely important phone call. Right, to your British buddy, or if you're in London, your Yankee friend. Huh. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much, that's, that's pretty expensive. Um, 1929, Bell Labs broadcast the first public demonstration of a color television picture. Oh, wow, that's early too. Yeah, and uh, it was, uh, the <laughs> the thing they showed was a telephone operator, of course, Dressed in a colorful costume. And uh, AT&T researchers that year filed a patent for coaxial cable for broadband transmission. Uh, as of that year, there are more than 20 million phones in the United States and uh, 15.4 million of those are operated by Bell. Uh, and they've got uh, how many? Uh, 450,000 employees. They started off with one, Thomas Watson. Uh, now they're up to 450,000 of course, Watson was no longer with the company at that point. No. Uh, but at any rate, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And so 1930, Bell starts to hold demonstrations to teach customers how to use dial service, the, the rotary dial. Oh, right. Because before that, whenever you picked up a phone, you would reach an operator and you would tell the operator where you wanted to place your call. They would find out how to route it and do it for you. And uh, I, th- I think in the 1920s, they were starting to get into some electromechanical systems that would do that for you. But or for the operators, but you still had to talk to an operator to get your call to where it was going. Right. This was the first time that you would use a a number, a data set to tell the phone what you wanted to do. Right. So this is where people started to get phone numbers and Mm -hmm. you would start to dial numbers. And uh, and all the all the switching was handled by electromechanical switches at that point forward. But you had to teach people how to do this because it, it was new. No one had ever had to do it before. And I don't know how many of our listeners are familiar with the old rotary dialing phones. Uh, dialing on those could be really fun if you were a kid. But if you were an adult making the, your fifth or sixth phone call that day, you would just sit there and hope that none of the numbers you had to call were in that were six, nine. seven, eight, nine range. Yeah. <laughs> Where you, you know, you dial and you just and have to wait, wait for the forever. whole thing to go, yeah, click, 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 click. Good times. So by 1932, Bell had, was in control of 79% of national telecommunications market in the United States. They had made acquisitions throughout those years and had bought up smaller companies. So nearly 80% of yeah. all telecommunications in the U.S. falls under so – that's an effectively a monopoly. Oh, sure. Right, right. And, and it's also up from what's the, about 75% only a few years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, so they, they, were in, they were continuing to grow and they were already practically the only game in town. So – and a monopoly doesn't have to really be the only business, right? You you don't have to be just the only one out there offering something to have a monopoly. You just have to be so large that no one can uh, realistically compete with you on any similar level. So let's say, for example, that Google were to to completely dominate search. They're they're pretty far in the lead, but let's say they completely dominate it to the point where no other search engine is even close. Then Google would have to start worrying about being identified as a monopoly. 
And this is the funny thing is this doesn't necessarily mean that people are practicing unfair you know, uh, tactics that just may mean that the way they do business was the way that resonated with a lot of people. So you can have different views of monopolies. You can either see people trying their best to try and grab up as much of the pie as possible, or you just see people just doing a really good job and then being punished for it. So there are two sides to this coin. I think in this case in particular, it was due to that entire government regulation of Basically allowing them to be a monopoly. Could be. Yeah, they had a huge head start and then mm-hmm. the government gave them an even bigger boost. Well, first of all, because of that whole patent thing we talked about in the last episode, they had exclusive rights for the longest time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they they definitely uh, benefited quite a bit. Moving on. Uh, so 1934, AT&T began Trans-Pacific telephone service between the United States and Japan via radio signals. So, um, again, as with many of these beginning services, you could only put through a single call at a time. Right. And uh, now, granted, they had they had improved the efficiency of radio by that time. So remember, just a few years earlier, that transatlantic call was around 75 bucks for three minutes. They lowered the cost for Pacific calls, which is amazing. It was only 39 bucks for three minutes. Yep. Which in today's money would be about six hundred and eighty one dollars. So pittance. Yeah. You know, it's. Forget, forget your friends in London. Call your buddies over in Tokyo. Um, yeah, still expensive, but not nearly as much as it was before. Now, this brings us up 1934's big year for AT&T, uh, because that's also when the United States government passed the Communications Act of 1934. They thought about passing the Communications Act of 1934 and 1933, but the name just didn't work. So they held off for a full year. Lauren's just staring at me. She doesn't like it when I throw in jokes. So uh, <laughs> especially bad ones. <laughs> established that that that's the act that actually established the Federal Communications Commission, also known as the FCC. Now, the FCC did not just spring out fully formed and have brand new powers. It actually kind of absorbed some previously existing uh, organizations like the Federal Radio Commission and parts not all of it, but parts of the Interstate Commerce Commission that governed telephone and telegraph operations and kind of centralized all this because this was one of those uh, examples of how technology outpaces legislation. Absolutely. And so this was the United States government attempt to try and catch up to the state of affairs because they said, well, you know, back when this was starting, we had no idea where it was going to go. And now we need to be it's able to It's a big enough thing. And, and especially considering that more and more people were using radio signals and the way that radio signals work is that you cannot have two signals on the same bandwidth uh, going out near each other because they'll conflict. Yeah, um, you end up getting interference. Interference, right. So, so yeah, so, so government regulations starting to crack down on how people could use these new fancy radio signals in order to keep the airways clear for everyone's use. Right. And it also gave the FCC authority to regulate rates of interstate and international common carriers and administration relating to electronic communication. Which was basically saying don't gouge your customers. Right. So in other words, AT&T, remember, was pretty much exclusive as far as long distance goes. So any regional operator had to pay a toll in order for their customers to be able to access long distance. So if you're, if let's say, Lauren, you're in Atlanta and you want to call me and for some reason I'm in Omaha, Nebraska, and uh, they're two different regional carriers. And so you are using your regional carrier to tie into the AT&T long distance service, service mm-hmm. and then that call goes to me. Well, your regional service has to pay a fee in order to access that AT&T long distance. And then that fee usually gets passed down to you, the sure. customer. And this was a way of preventing 
any company, specifically AT&T. Because they were really the only one who could have that kind of wield that kind of power. Right. From raising prices so much that it puts other companies out of business or it puts undue harm on the consumer. That was the intent. Uh, That brings us up to 1935 when AT&T completed the first around the world call. It went all the way around the world. That they, seems uh, less than useful in a technical sense, but yeah. good good to know that they could do it. It was an impressive display of technology, not practical. <laughs> if I want to, if I want to call you, I just stand up and shout over the divider between our desks. I don't, I don't. Send you don't a place message, a call that has to get radio transmitted around the through. Globe. Uh-huh. No, I don't. I don't. Not anymore. Not on. Not on Tuesdays anyway. Not after HR talked to me. <laughs> Uh, 1937, that's, uh, when Clinton Davison of Bell Telephone Labs wins the Nobel Prize in Physics for experimental confirmation of the wave nature of electrons. So this is the first Nobel Prize awarded to someone working out of Bell Labs. It would not be the last. There'd be a bunch more, yeah. Yep. And, uh, in case you're wondering, the whole, uh, wave nature of electrons, well, electrons are particles, but in the lab we have I say we scientists have observed that electrons could also behave like waves. And so this was that whole wave particle duality thing you can hear about in various types of uh, of particle physics, quantum mechanics, that kind of thing. Uh, we won't go into it here because it's outside the realm of this podcast, but it's fascinating stuff. So mm-hmm. it's no no surprise they got the Nobel Prize. Now, in 1939, the telephone is deployed as, quote, a weapon of preparedness, end quote. Uh, that's also when Western Electric makes signal core sets leading up to the U.S. involvement in World War II. So signal core sets are essentially kind of like radio telephones. It was something that certain uh, certain units in World War II had access to in order to maintain communications and uh, just showed that this company was still very much involved in government uh, uh, projects, right. which will become important in just a minute. But before we get to that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. You've probably tried Hulu.com. Now, with Hulu Plus, you can watch your favorite shows anytime, anywhere. Hulu Plus lets you watch thousands of hit TV shows and a selection of acclaimed movies on your television or on the go with your smartphone or tablet. And it all streams in HD for the best viewing experience. With Hulu Plus, you can watch your favorite current TV shows like Supernatural or South Park or Parks and Recreation. You can also check out exclusive content, including Hulu originals like The Awesome, starring SNL's Seth Meyers, and Moon Boy, starring Chris O'Dowd from Bridesmaids. Hulu Plus also offers a great selection of acclaimed films. For only $7.99 a month, you can stream as many TV shows and movies as you want, wherever you want. Right now, you can try Hulu Plus free for two weeks when you go to HuluPlus.com forward slash tech. That's a special offer for our listeners. Make sure you use HuluPlus.com forward slash tech so you get the extended free trial and they know that we sent you. Go to HuluPlus.com forward slash tech now. And, uh, you know, I always like to talk about the shows I watch when I use Hulu Plus. I got to talk about Community. Community is one of those shows where when I watched the first couple of episodes, it didn't quite grab me. But as I began to get more invested in the characters and really enjoy the way that jokes would play out, not just over an episode, but over several episodes, I couldn't help but feel that it was a really clever, really funny show. So if you like running gags and if you listen to this show, you, you pretty much have to go check out Community. And we're back. All right. So. Now we're up to 1941, and uh, we talked earlier about how 
Bell Labs was was pioneering coaxial cable development in the laboratory. Right. 1941 is when they actually installed the first non-experimental coaxial cable for Bell service between Minneapolis, Minnesota and Stevens Point, Wisconsin. So this is physical cable they're laying down for the transmission of signals as opposed to transmitting them over the air. Um, and uh, and it was a success. Ended up being the basis for the cable industry, also for the early Internet industry. Pretty impressive stuff. Right. Now, uh, this is when World War II is being waged around the world, mostly in, of course, the European and uh, uh, Southeast Asia theaters. Um, this is also a time when 70,000 Bell employees would serve in World War II. Wow. Uh, and, and Bell companies would wind up producing more than 1,200 defense projects for um, all, all, all kinds of stuff. I mean, you know, materials, radios, radar, mine fuses, uh, all of that technical yeah. stuff that needed to happen. Yeah. So the, another government project that was a big part of what uh, AT&T was doing at that point. So 1943 was when AT&T begins automation of long distance switching. So now they're... At this point, the rolling it out would take years. Sure, but but it was just not only local service, but also across different local uh, yeah. networks. Right, right. Local operators connecting to the long distance one. We're starting to see the switching become automated. Uh, that would be a big uh, improvement in efficiency too. Mm-hmm. Uh, as of 1945, 50% of American households had a telephone. Wow. And the problem was they all wanted to call the other half. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's yeah. just. Darn it. When are they, when are the Johnsons getting that phone? Uh, 1946 was when AT&T offers mobile telephone service in St. Louis, Missouri. And that is not what you were thinking of. Well, uh, it was well, mobile. Well, well, well <laughs> if, if you had a car. <laughs> yeah. The, these were, these were not the kind of handheld devices that, that even Zach Morris would have, uh, many decades <laughs> nice. later. That's a save by the bell reference. <laughs> that's, that's, that's after my time, but I get it. Um, I, th- I think each region of service had a single antenna, yeah. which could handle about 20 calls at once. Yeah, at most. At okay. most. At Sometimes most. it was right. between 12 and 20. It all depended upon the antenna. Yeah, these were, uh, again, using radio signals, sort of like those those transatlantic and transpacific connections that we talked about earlier. But on a, a more mobile scale, you would call in and it would it would uh, communicate to, to a tower, kind of similar to cell service, but it's not cell service. Oh, right. This was all radio. Yeah. If you if you moved outside the range of that antenna, you would not be able to place that call because there were there weren't cells. You know, we we'll have to do a full episode on how cell phones work at some point to explain that handoff process. Yeah. But there was no handoff process. So if you moved out of range, that was it. And these mobile telephones were enormous and heavy. They were more akin to the sort of stuff you would have seen. In like, if you've ever watched a World War II movie where they have one of those backpack radios, yeah, I think I think Patton carries a few around sometimes. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a little closer to that, not quite as military looking, but similar in size and weight. So not something that was terribly useful for the average person, but for some people, like truck drivers, it might come in handy, or uh, other other people who happen to be very mobile but have a large carrying capacity on them at all times. Um, so. The, this is also the year, 1947, when Bell Labs employees invent a particular piece of technology that would go on to play a very important role, I think. In uh, not only telephone industry, but computers, the future as we know it. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about the transistor. Yep, the, it was Bell Labs that came up with the transistor. And we've talked about, and we talked about these gentlemen before. There were three people in particular 
uh, leading that project, who ended up later on winning a Nobel Prize for that invention. That's John Bardeen, Walter Bretain, and then William Shockley, who we talked about recently when we were talking about another company <laughs> right. and Shockley's shocking views that led the, the, some people to, to become the traitorous eight or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, and this transistor, we talked in the previous episode about vacuum tubes being such a huge development in the telecommunications industry because they allowed for those first electromechanical computers to, to work. And the transistor was what would replace these vacuum tubes. In, right. Anything that was doing computing work. Yeah, it, it would allow you to do amplification. It would allow you to do... It, it, it and was miniaturization, smaller. more yes, exactly. Miniaturization was the big thing. It, it reduced heat and it allowed for miniaturization, something that you couldn't do with vacuum tubes, which meant that our computers no longer would take up the space of a building. They right. would eventually take up the space of, you know, your pocket Right. Smartphones. All, all of this really makes me wonder what what would have happened if AT and T had not had the reach and power and the money to have this research and development lab. You know, if if they had not been the crazy, not quite monopoly, sort of a monopoly that they were. You know, would I? You know, parallel development was going on in some other labs sure, at the time, sure. but. Um, yeah, I think we would have eventually seen the transistor, but it probably would have come out later, and it probably would have taken longer to get uh, ramped up into a a form that would be manufacturable because this early transistor was not something you would put in any kind of electronics. It was more of a proof of concept. If you've ever seen a replica of it, it was enormous. I mean, it's one transistor. Keep in mind that your average microprocessor could have a a billion or more transistors on it. This thing was big enough to fit like it was it would fit in the palm of your hand, but But nothing else would. (laughs) Yeah. So so this is this was early days yet. So I think our world would be significantly different had that not happened. So let's move on to 1948. Yeah. Uh, that was when AT&T began offering networking services for TV. Yeah. In the Northeast and the Midwest. So, uh, yeah, the way it would work is that your, your networks, your big networks would use this service to transmit programming to affiliated stations in different regions of the United States. So that way you could have like the big network broadcast out of some place like New York and then have that, uh, sent to, uh, to an affiliate station that might be far across the country. Mm-hmm. This was also the year that AT&T began to build its first microwave relay system between New York and Boston. And microwave relay is a um, an improvement on, or not an improvement, but but a parallel development on that radio transmission that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. It's um, it, it's a series of antennas or, or dishes that carry data via microwave. And these can be sent in narrow beams directly to the receiving devices, which means that you can have multiple devices working within the same bandwidths. At the same time. So you dramatically increase capacity that way. Right, right. Um, you know, they've also got a, a higher bandwidth than other radio waves, but you do have to have a direct line of sight, which means that, you know, it's, it's, you can't have something behind a hill or behind a tree or behind a house. Right. It's right, not going to work. Right. Yeah. So there were limitations, but still, uh, dramatic improvements in, in being able to transmit information and both data and voice as it would turn out. Uh, so moving on, we now get hit <laughs> in 1949 with another antitrust suit. Uh, we don't actually. AT and T. AT and T did. did. Yeah. Uh, this would not be resolved for several years, and believe us, we will tell you about it when that happens in yeah. our timeline. But... At that time, AT and T controlled about 80 percent of the telecommunications industry in the United States, so still holding steady from several years before when they were at 79 percent. But keep in mind, the industry is growing by leaps and bounds. Like that. That. 50% of American households with telephones is growing over time. So 
while AT&T's percentage might have gone from 79 to 80%, the actual numbers are huge. Oh, right, right. As of 1955, 70, 70% of American households would have a telephone. So that's, that's the range that it was that's growing like a within. A huge jump, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, back in 1949, that's also when AT&T introduced the 500 series telephone. Uh, which was one of the most recognizable phones ever introduced. If you've ever seen this, it's essentially the base station with the rotary uh, dial on it. And then you have the, the, the back of it. The top back has the cradle where the, the handset sits. And uh, it's just one of those phones that once you see it, you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, it's a phone. That's, that's, what, that's that what that is. That's what that is. Even if the uh, only phone I've ever seen is a smartphone, somehow I recognize <laughs> that that's a phone. Um, yeah, because you know, phones don't look like that or sound like that anymore, and yet it's still the enduring image, I would say. And and that's probably the where the sound that we think of as a telephone ring comes from yeah, as well. Yeah. You know, before Bring. we all had, yeah. you know, whatever, Miley Cyrus ringtones or et cetera. Hey, let's not reveal to the listeners what my ringtone is. <laughs> but we talked about that. <laughs> 1951, AT&T introduces customer dialing of domestic long-distance calls, and it started in Inglewood, New Jersey. So before that time, uh, you could make local calls dialing. We talked about that earlier, but you would still connect with an operator to make a long distance call. Also that year, AT&T helped broadcast a live transcontinental television uh, show. Actually, it was a, a, an address that President Harry Truman made to the Japan Peace Treaty Conference at the United Nations. So a uh, big Big development in in just television broadcast at that point too. Oh, right, this was thanks to that to that microwave relay network that I was talking about that they had spent the past few years building. Um, as of 1951, it was a system of 107 towers, some 30 miles apart each, and this telecast happened only a month after the very first call was placed via this microwave network. They they moved up their telecast schedule by almost a month in order to accommodate President Truman. That's pretty incredible that they were able to to accommodate that so quickly, considering that it was just recently proven as a thing. It was a completely a new technology, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. 1954, for the first time, Western Electric begins to produce telephones in different colors, giving choices to consumers. So it wasn't just black telephones anymore. Now you can get them in beige. Uh, 1956 was the resolution of that 1949 antitrust lawsuit. Yeah, so this was a big deal. So part of the antitrust lawsuit meant that AT&T agreed to restrict itself to just dealing with the telephone industry and also occasionally doing any sort of projects for the federal government that was asked of it, but otherwise to stay out of other industries. Of television, of the, the, the slowly burgeoning computer industry that yeah. was going on at the time. So essentially they were, they were saying, all right, you know, we, we don't want any trouble, Mr. United States government. We will back off. So this is the first of that, of that, uh, telco industry regulation, but we'll get into a, a one that directly affected AT&T even more than this did. Another couple of decades would yeah. see an even bigger one. Um, th- this particular consent decree also included a stipulation that AT&T had to place its patents for the transistor, which, uh, which our friends, uh, the nice doodly dudes. Bardeen and Bretain. <laughs> et cetera. And Shockley, yes. Uh, they, they won the Nobel Prize for it this year in 1956. Yep. Um, they had to place the patents for that transistor in the public domain and be willing to license their tech for about um, $25,000, which, according to that Bureau of Labor Statistics calculator, would be about $215,000 right. today. And when you think about the benefit of transistors, it's it's fortunate that that happened. 
Absolutely. Because imagine a world where AT&T had... Had what, held had, on to that for... Had, yeah. Had, what if they had had exclusive rights to the transistor the way they had exclusive rights to the telephone company? Certainly I mean, that, everything that we talked about in our in our last... In, in, our, in our last few podcasts mm-hmm. where we've talked about companies that were, you know, like Fairchild Semiconductor and also things like Texas Instruments and other companies that, that did pioneering work with transistors, uh, obviously that would not have been the case had they not been allowed to license that technology. So yeah, big, big, uh, decision there. Also 1956 was when service opened up for the TAT1, which was the transatlantic, uh, uh, telephone cable. Now, this is a cable that actually did stretch all the way from the United States to Europe. And uh, the initial capacity was for 36 calls at a time. So much better than that one call at a time radio method they had been using decades before. And they were also of a higher quality, the calls that you could place than via radio. And the cost was a mere $12 for the first three minutes, which translates to about 103 bucks today. So $103 phone call for three minutes. And we're also slightly more secure. Uh, there is less chance of somebody else uh, Listening tapping in. into the yeah. signal. It's a lot harder to tap into a phone line when it's underwater. More I, difficult. I, not that I speak from experience or anything. <laughs> uh, 1956 was also the year that the first picture phone system was tested. Uh, and and by picture phone, I mean, this This isn't FaceTime. It's, you know, it, it would send an image about once every two seconds. Yeah. And we're going to get a little bit more into picture phone shenanigans in the following years. Yeah. 1958, AT&T introduced the first commercial modem, which was meant for enterprise customers, not con- not average consumers. So uh, it allowed for computers to make a direct connection to one another. Uh, there's not such a thing as as a network yet. That that would come into play once ARPANET really would give her a would rise up in a couple of years. But Modems, of course, became very important for that kind of uh, technology to exist. Uh, AT&T also began research work in lasers and fiber optics. That, again, another transformative technology in telecommunications. Speaking of transformative technologies, I believe you have a really important note this for 1959. I, I included this one just for Lauren because <laughs> Lauren's a girl. You know, girls like pink. So uh, I know this because the technology industries have taught me numerous times by all the pink electronics that are out there that pink is for girls and girls like pink. And if you don't like pink, then something's wrong, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, I obviously I don't really believe any of that. But the introduction of the pink princess phone came in 1959. And then I have a note here which says, don't hit me, Lauren. Lauren, please don't hit me. All right. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsor while Lauren calms down. All right, we're back. Lauren, are, is, has your murderous rage kind of died down to just just a, a loathing? No, yeah, I guess. I mean, you know, it's, it's just normal, normal levels at gotcha. this point. Okay. <laughs> um, no, so, okay, so coming back to the timeline, in 1960, AT&T launched Echo, which was a balloon off which data could be bounced. And this is about to become important because in 1962, they would launch Telestar 1, which was the very first active communication satellite. Right. Remember that at this time, the satellites that had been launched into orbit would usually transmit a very weak, very simple signal just to alert people on the ground that, in fact, it, it was existed. There. Yeah. Right. It was just a ping, really. Yeah. So like Sputnik, it was the machine that went ping and went around the world a few times and uh, people on the ground could detect it, but you couldn't communicate with it. You couldn't use it to bounce signals off of it. It was really just there as a proof of concept. Right. So but this... the Telstar 1 allowed for actual live transmission of yeah. television across the Atlantic. 
Yeah, and, and the first phone call transferred through space was between the AT&T chairman and the vice president of the United States. Within 30 minutes, it also tested live and taped television and other data. The, the whole project was a collaboration with NASA, actually, but it was the first privately sponsored space launch. Yeah, and now look at our world. Private private sponsored space launches are are becoming the way that we're getting into space these days. Mm-hmm. 1963, AT&T introduces touch tone service. So we start to see the rotary dial begin to disappear and now we have the keypad, the familiar keypad if you've ever used a an old phone with a keypad on it. Some of you guys just don't even know what that is. You t- all your all your buttons have appeared on a screen. It's it's, it's what the buttons replicate on a screen. The, the skeuomorphism, That's... yeah. I want a skeuomorphic dial pad where it's the rotary dial pad. I'm sure there has to be one. I'm positive. Oh, it's something for me to if, look at. If for. not, one of you clever app makers out there, do that and do let the, us know. The rotary dial mm-hmm. uh, dial face. Uh, I, I don't know why I would give my... I would just be less likely to make phone calls, which I guess is a good thing <laughs> in the wrong run. I mean, no one wants to hear from me anyway. 1964, AT&T... <laughs> I'm alright. AT&T opens TPC-1, which was the first submarine telephone cable across the Pacific. So this stretched from Japan to Hawaii. And they're connected to two cables that linked Hawaii with the mainland. Um, so experimental picture phone service also begins in some cities. Lauren uh, had talked about that. Oh, right. It was installed specifically in exhibits at Disneyland and at the New York World's Fair. Yeah. So, again, it had a monitor and uh, and a camera and was very primitive. But it was sort of the, the predecessor to what we would think of as video calls, mm-hmm. uh, which Still, we're waiting to take off. Uh, 1965, AT&T installs a special purpose computer, which was the first electronic telephone switch in a local telephone exchange in New Jersey. And so, I believe that first switch was the 4ESS, which could handle about 500,000 calls per hour, which was 10 times the amount that the standard electromechanical switch could handle. Exactly. So now we're moving into the digital age and beyond the electromechanical age. Uh, 1968, AT&T introduces 911 as the U.S. nationwide emergency number first rolled out in Huntington, Indiana. Uh, other countries have their own emergency numbers. And uh, I, I have to mention, you know, uh, according to the IT crowd, apparently the U.K. just changed it to 011-899-8819-911-9725-3. I had to put that in there. Yeah, no, incredibly important. Yeah. Um, as of 1969, 90% of American households had a phone line. Finally. <laughs> Slackers. <laughs> they just didn't have anyone they wanted to talk to. Aw. 1970, AT&T introduces customer dialing for international long-distance telephone calls, starting with Manhattan and London. Oh. Um, also that year, a commercial picture phone service debuted in downtown Pittsburgh and... And went absolutely nowhere. <laughs> Basically, nobody cared at yeah. all. I think they were like, this is cumbersome and kind of stupid and I don't want it. I, th- I think for a lot of us, video calls are still uh, kind of slow to be adopted because it means having to keep some part of your house pristine so that the people who are calling you don't realize how you really live. I'm always really nervous about about web web chat calls at work because I'm like, oh, crap. What's going on in the background? Is Josh doing something inappropriate back there? You know, but like by inappropriate, I mean. I mean, like using the swords that Chuck has to have a fight with someone else in the editorial department. Not that he would ever do that again. <laughs> um, 1971. That is when Bell Labs produced the Unix operating system. Yeah, huge development here. So 
The idea was to create an operating system that was platform independent, meaning that you could put this operating system on different types of computers. Because keep in mind, in the early days, a lot of these computers had proprietary systems that they would operate on, and that was it. You could not have, uh, you couldn't run the same kind of software for one computer and an, uh, on a, as to the a, next, right? Yeah, because exactly, because they, they did, they weren't compatible. You had to recompile all of your programming into a different language so right. that it would run on a different computer. This was kind of an attempt to allow AT&T to have a computer system where it didn't really matter what hardware they had. As long as it could run this operating system, they could run the same software across the multiple divisions. Huge development. Absolutely. Um, in 1975, armed partially with this, AT&T began to computerize its operations. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the computers could handle a, a much larger call volume, like you mentioned earlier, Lauren. That that one switch was a good example. So we're starting to see uh, a, a rapid rollout of development, although it would take probably 10 years for this to be uh, to be complete because, you know, it's a huge infrastructure, right? I mean, you're talking about a nationwide telephone service. So it's not like you just flip a switch and suddenly everything's magically in computer world. Right, right. Um, yeah, in fact, it would take until 1999 to complete the transition. Oh, that's true. The very last toll switch was completed in 1999. So even longer. I, I said 10 years. I was way off, 75 to 99. Uh, 1976, uh, that's when MCI filed an antitrust suit against AT&T. Now, they had started looking at the possibility of pursuing this kind of uh, uh, legal action back in the you know a little earlier in the 70s. They had met with the Department of Justice, uh, but AT&T ended up dis- disconnecting MCI's foreign exchange customers. Uh, kind of, it doesn't say directly in response to MCI asking the DOJ about this, but you might be able to draw that conclusion. So. With this antitrust lawsuit filed against AT&T, the Department of Justice would then look into the matter and file its own antitrust lawsuit against AT&T in 1977. Uh, so that'll come into play in just a couple of years where that, that's the big one we talk about. The big. Right. This, this lawsuit would go on for six years. Yeah. So in 77, besides the fact that the DOJ brought an antitrust lawsuit against it, AT&T also opened the first network operations center in New Jersey. Now, this allowed AT&T to have a centralized location where they could have real-time management of its entire long-distance network. Instead of having a bunch of regional offices that all coordinate together, they could actually control everything from one spot, like, you know, the empire. Uh, that same year, <laughs> AT&T installed the first fiber optic cable in a commercial communication system. So using light as opposed to electricity through a copper wire. Mm-hmm. 1978, on the on his first day on the bench, Judge Harold Green drew the AT&T antitrust case. Can you imagine that? Ouch. Your oh, first day I... on the bench as a judge and you draw the AT&T antitrust case. I think that must, in fact, be where jokes about, like, the cases of the Mondays come from. That's, <laughs> that's pretty ridiculous. That was a case of many years of Mondays for that poor judge. <laughs> 1979. All right. So in the United States, they had about 175,535,000 telephones active, give or take a few. And Bell had more than a million employees. That's Incredible. A million people working for this company. That's phenomenal. 1981, MCI wins its antitrust lawsuit against AT&T and the United States versus AT&T goes to trial. So the MCI lawsuit's over, but the Department of Justice's lawsuit still has stuff to say about it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that brings us to January 1982. 
we're going to end on this year uh, and we'll pick up in 1983 in our next podcast. But six years of this federal antitrust case going on in some form or another, AT&T is uh, up against the wall. They have really very few options. So they agree to divest themselves of the seven regional bell operating care, uh, uh, company carriers that, that it owns. So like the big ones, which also represented smaller companies inside uh-huh. of it. it. It was up until this point, um, generally referred to as Ma Bell and. Yeah. All the different bell systems, Southwestern Bell, South, Bell South. Mm-hmm. You had, you know, all these, if you've ever heard a company with Bell in the title of it as a telephone company, it belonged to this family. AT&T yeah. at, the, at the time. So AT&T essentially is getting rid of all of its local calling service. It's staying as a long distance carrier. And it also, uh, as a sort of a concession, I guess you could say, you know, it, it had to get rid of all this local stuff so that it could no longer, uh, kind of maintain this monopoly. But in return, it was allowed to go into computer systems. Yeah. So or this, computer communication business yeah, rather. Yeah. It, and it lift this lifted that that ban we talked about from the 1956 judgment. Right. So now while AT&T has to get rid of all those other companies and it would take a couple of years for them to do this. I mean, obviously you can't just do this overnight either, but for them that you know, in return they get to go into this new industry. Uh so it was kind of a, you know, a Silver lining kind of thing, if you want to look at it that way. And I think it would turn out, uh, considering the very fast gains in Internet popularity over the next couple decades to be uh, completely worthwhile. Well, especially considering that that separation of AT&T and those Bell operating companies wouldn't last for all of them. Right. But that's a spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So AT&T would end up reabsorbing Western Electric. It would become part of AT&T formally. It was no longer spun off. Uh, also, the Bell operating companies would not be allowed to offer long distance service. So AT&T would remain the long distance carrier. The Bell operating companies would become local carriers and neither was supposed to engage in the other's business. So, uh, I mean, apart from AT&T allowing the interconnections, but AT&T could not go into local service. Bell operating companies could not go into long distance service. Um, and also the Bell companies couldn't go into information service or manufacturing uh, and everyone was supposed to provide equal access to all long distance companies. So in other words, you couldn't have, uh, Bell South say that AT&T was the exclusive long distance carrier. Bell South customers had to have choice. So that was supposed to set, you know, put us all back at square one, reset the playing field. We're all on level ground. That was the intent. But, um, I think we'll use our next episode to talk about how well that turned out. Right. It, it, I think it was really more, you know, it wasn't it wasn't leveling a playing field. It was giving luxury blimps to the people at the top <laughs> of the playing field to kind of gently coast downwards and a little bit. Maybe a diamond encrusted uh, uh, a landing pad for their <laughs> golden parachutes. Uh, anyway, we might get a little snarky in our final episode on AT&T, but look forward to that. That'll be our next one. And if you have a suggestion for future episodes of Tech Stuff, please let us know. We've had a lot of people writing in recently, which is fantastic. It is. Keep and it up. Yeah, yeah. And we would love to start um, to start reading some of your. Some of you guys have really terrific and wonderful insights on the things that we're saying and, and on different segments of the industry. And we love hearing those. And we're going to bring back, without alarm clocks, and some listener mail. So. Uh, do- We'll discuss the alarm clock. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, write us. Our address is techstuff at discovery.com or get in touch with us on our social media sites that we 
inhabit. They're not, we don't own them. No. I say this every time. Uh-huh. But yeah, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. You can find us there. Tech Stuff, HSW, and Lauren and I will talk to you again, maybe on the phone, really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 